Hello, listeners, and welcome to this week's Marie Claire Starts Somewhere podcast with me, your host, Sarah Vaughan. And this week, I'm just overjoyed to be joined by someone I haven't seen for over a year, and I'm seeing her on Zoom. And um, she's so dear to me, and she's so special, and she's such an inspiration to me always. And that person is the very amazing Amanda Ducadney, who has so many different job titles, it's, it's just extraordinary. She's a writer, she's a photographer, she's an entrepreneur, she's an advocate, she is founder of an amazing company called Girl Gaze, and she's creator of the conversation and all the while manages to juggle a very busy family life and, and lots of children. <laughs> I don't know how you do it, Amanda. <laughs> I'm tired just listening to that. I need to take a nap just hearing all those things. <laughs> So as you know, my love, we start this podcast by asking how you got started out in life. Well, I started working very young. I was 14 when I got my first job and um, I got a job really because of necessity, because I needed to be able to support myself financially. And um I really didn't have any kind of aspirations one way or the other. I was always told at school that I would probably not amount to much, that I didn't have a very hopeful career ahead of me, oh that it was a possibility. I was quite good at writing, I was told, um, and that maybe I could have a career as a writer or a journalist or something, maybe, but unlikely. So there wasn't a lot of kind of career optimism um, for me in school. Um, and that's probably because I was not a great student. Um, I was really distracted and found it very hard to focus um, on one thing. And I was always kind of interested in what was going on outside of the classroom. So, you know, my career has been a very, my career trajectory has been a very unusual one in that um, it is not traditional in any way, shape or form. It has always been informed by what's going on inside me. Um, so by that, I mean, my first job was um, was interviewing people on on live television, which sounds just crazy when you say it like that, you know, but at the time it was at the time it felt very natural to me. Um, and I think that there's, you know, for people who are immensely talented at something, um, you know, or they're born with a skill like my husband, uh, you know, could play guitar like a virtuoso at six. And I'm not kidding you. Just like Gosh. weird, like the guy picks up the guitar and he knows what to do. Um, and for me, I have always been fascinated by people, um, even as a as a kid or, you know, when I was at boarding school um, as a teenager, I was really curious about who people were and I always wanted to kind of get to know them and get to understand them. And so interviewing people was, you know, uh, very second nature to me. And I, I was basically, um, you know, asked to go, someone said, oh, you should go for an audition. I was trying to get a job at like a pizza place or <laughs> no one would hire me because I was 14. <laughs> oh and then, you end up fronting one of the biggest shows in, in the UK. Hilarious. Yeah. And someone I met a guy in a in a pub who said, Oh, do you do you know um you, you know channel four in the you you know channel four is 
doing a TV show, a new TV show, and you should go because they're looking for someone to interview people. And I was like, great, you know, I'll go. Uh, didn't really know what that was. And, you know, I'm very grateful that the people that make that show saw something in me. It probably wasn't my phenomenal interview chops. It was probably my outfits and my complete lack of self-consciousness. Um, but it worked and I, and I learned on the job. You know, I, I started, actually that wasn't the, f the first one I did when I was 14, almost 15 was the first show on B Sky B. When BSB was first starting and it was a music show and it was four hours long. It was so long. Oh my God. Um, and then I did the word, um, obviously, yes, I did the word and that kind of catapulted me from being just like a schoolgirl who was trying to su support herself to, you know, a kind of household name where, um, and it was a very odd tra shift and transition, but, um, but I, you know, I really, I learned so much you know, even my TV show, the conversation that I make, you know, now, and I had a live late night show in the US um, called Undone, and it was a live show. And everything I learned on the word is uh, what I have put to use in my other shows, because that was like a live late night show that literally, it was so chaotic. You would just have an earpiece and they'd just throw you out, like in the middle of a field or, you know, with like a, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger or something. And you were just like, what? it was just so unprepared. There was no kind of research or questions or you just, you just, we just, every week we just wing it, you know, and it just taught me how to handle like anything on TV. So, you know, I like, you know, Chelsea Handler had a live show here and, you know, she went off on vacation for a month and, it was like on a Wednesday and she's like, can you host my show for me on Friday? Cause I'm not going to be here. And I was like, okay, just because like, I've got that, those chops from having done it for years on the word. So that was an incredible experience. And I'm, I'm so, I never knew that's what I wanted to do. I never even knew if I was good at it. That's debatable, but I learned so much, you know? So there you were at the word. And, and I mean, like you've literally kind of come out of school and you're literally presenting, I mean, like you, you're a household name. I mean, what happened? Did you know, I mean, where did you want to go? What happened? I mean, like, like what was your next step after the word? Um, to not be famous and to not be a household name and to return to some semblance of normalcy, which I hadn't had before the word. By the time I finished the word, I then married my first husband, John Taylor. I had my daughter, Atlanta. I was 20, I was 21 when I finished the word. So I'd done years of being on TV and growing up on TV. It was just very unhealthy in many ways, you know? Um, I mean, look, it was great. It was great. I learned a lot. It was fun. It was crazy. It was like, you know, an amazing experience, but for like my mental health, it was terrible. Yeah, and I remember you said that, you know, there was this incident that happened, which 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 really prompted you to leave the UK um, when the yeah. snapped you. Yeah, yeah, I I think it's just very hard to live in a goal, in a kind of under scrutiny as a young person as well, when you're just formulating your ideas and who you are. And, you know, you're kind of very much in process, but you're doing it publicly. 
Yeah. And that's why I have a lot of empathy for people who are young, who, you know, go off the rails and, you know, people rarely look at like, what's the underlying cause. They just ridicule the symptoms and judge the symptoms. And, you know, no one really, unless you've been, you've had that experience, you know, it's, uh, it's as, it's as damaging as it is incredible. Yeah. I mean, obviously if it was just a shit show the whole time, everyone would know that it sucked and who would do it, but it's not, it's this like a really weird kind of seductive, um, you know, spider web that you get into where, you know, your ego and your validation and your sense of self and your identity in the world is all mirrored back to you through your fame. And it's just not real. It's an illusion. And anything that you're relying on outside of yourself to create the, your internal structure is very, very damaging. Whether that's people, someone else, a job. In my case, it was fame that was tied to my job. Um, and I just kind of, I sort of knew that. I felt very empty. I felt like it was a weird feeling and I remember it very clearly because I was like, I had the job, I had him, I had the kid, I had the, the tent, you know, I had all, I had all the stuff, right? All yeah. the outside stuff that people kind of strive for. And I remember just thinking or feeling so unhappy and so lonely and so empty. And I was like, this is not right. Like, this is not right. And it was, you know, I really began to realize that the kind of what we're sold as the ultimate achievement, being married to him, having that baby, having that house, having that job, looking like that, uh, is, is not, is not the answer. I mean, it's a piece of the answer, but it's not the answer. It's not like the big missing piece that we're raised to believe it is. And so as I started to realize that I started to think, okay, what have I, I got to change some stuff here. Cause mm -hmm. like, this is, is not, you know, and that meant changing my job. It meant, uh, not taking the opportunity to do my own show, um, on channel four, which I was at the time asked to do. And it's funny because lately it's been like, I don't know, 20 years of the word or whenever it was that we did it. Exactly. And so many people have been coming out of the woodwork you know, just saying like, oh my God, you know, bring the word back. And I was like, well, the truth is, is that, you know, I would have to, I would be the anchor of it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's how it would be. There's no way I would do a show where I was like, you know, like the dude's sidekick. <laughs> right. Like, hello, it's never going to happen. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yes. Uh, you know, and it was like, it was, it was like a kind of perfect, you know, British girl on telly thing, you know, where you're like funny and sexy and sassy and irreverent. And, you know, people think you don't really know what you're on about. And, you know, cause you can't be too smart cause then you're threatening. Um, you can't kind of like, look how I looked then and be really smart and be really funny. There's no way the British public can have it all. That. I don't know that they could handle it now, to be honest. Um, so I, I realized that my job had a lot to do with my, um, my feeling bad about myself. Yeah. And so I stepped away and I, 
kind of came to the US and I wanted to be anonymous. And I wanted to kind of like just have an, an, a, I don't know what normal was, but I wanted to have a different experience. And I really didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew that I had to put, I had to stop and I had to take the time to find out what I liked, what I didn't like, you know, who I was. Right. Cause I just kind of like went for that job because I needed money and then my life changed. Yes. And if you don't stop to go, wow, what the fuck just happened? Then you can just barrel along, you know, for years and, and just lose yourself further and further. Yeah. And what did you do to help find yourself, Amanda? What, what tools did you use? What, what kind of things did you explore? I think the most significant thing that I did was that I, you know, I stopped using drugs and alcohol and I got sober. And I was 20 when that happened, uh, 20, no, almost 21. No, is I 21? Hang on, 21. No, I was 22. I was mm -hmm. 22. And that was about six months after I got to the US. And I would say that was the first thing because once I stopped um, medicating myself and, and changing how I felt with drugs and alcohol, I was able to get a sense of how I really felt. And I felt bad. Wow. I mean, like bad's an understatement. I was like, I was not in good shape at all. Like just emotionally, really severe mental health, depression, anxiety. I mean, of course I was. I had, you know, had a very unusual, you know, early life. And, um, and so I started to kind of unravel myself and that takes many forms for different people. For me, it required being sober. It required, um, starting pretty intensive, you know, therapeutic work, mm -hmm. um, that was, you know, there's so many different modalities with therapy and I've, you know, tried many of them. Um, there's kind of the basic cognitive behavioral therapy, which, you know, for people who don't know about that it's kind of, it's to do with behavior. It's like you get to change your responses to things. I did that for many years. Um, and you learn skills and tools that you don't call someone, you know, a fucking asshole when you want to, you learn to say like, well, you know, my feelings are hurt when you say that <laughs> Not you're a dick down the fucking, <laughs> like you learn like really things that like will help you to like, not, you know, screw up your life any further, basically but it doesn't kind of change for me, like how I felt inside. And yeah. so I did a lot of very deep, intensive recovery work that, that really got in touch with, you know, the pieces of myself that I had kind of broken off or shoved out the way or kind of buried. Um, and I became more, you know, integrated and more, um, connected to myself. And then I began to feel more alive and, you know, and I think not having purpose is one of the most challenging uh, feelings to have. When you don't know why you're getting out of bed or you don't have a reason to get out of bed, like, what's the point, you know? It's purpose has been my kind of driving force always. And when I'm without purpose, I'm in trouble. Yeah, and what did you- Most people are. 
Yeah, I, I think everyone is personally. And, and and what did you find your purpose to be? Because at this time you're you're then looking to photography and being behind the camera as well, rather yeah. than in front of it. Yeah, I mean, I didn't just did not want to be famous again. I was like, I don't want to put myself through that experience again. And I was really afraid that the kind of the the structure of myself that I had put together and I had built would get taken apart again by being you know, a famous person again. I didn't trust that that wouldn't happen to me. I didn't know that I was strong enough to be in the realm of being a famous person again um, and to not get taken apart. And I just did not want to get taken apart again. Um, And so, but I realized that I really, again, I'm interested in people and I'm a storyteller and I'll use whatever medium I can, whether I'm you know, writing a book or I'm taking photos or I'm interviewing people. you know, I'll, I'll use Instagram live. I'll use like, I'll I'll use TV. I'll use whatever the hell I can to tell stories. And, and I wanted to tell stories without me being the subject. And so, and I had always loved photography and because of being, you know, a famous person from a young age, I had been photographed by some of the most incredible photographers in the world and I had learned a lot from them. Uh, Mario Sorrenti, who is a photographer who, um, you know, is an incredible photographer and Glenn Lutchford, another person, mm-hmm. all men, um, but incredible visionaries and kind people, um, were people who I had kind of grown up with and I had seen them go, you know, from the beginning of their careers to being very successful. And I, I just, you know, I learned a lot from those two specifically. And uh, you know, also like passing that learning on, haven't you, in the founding yeah. of, of Girlgates? And, and maybe you'd like to talk a little bit about, about Girlgates. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the thing is, is that being a photographer was great because I could be behind the camera um, and it enabled me to uh, not think about myself in the same kind of narcissistic fashion that's required when you're in front of the camera. And I loved it. And I was able to really, um, you know, what kind of became my real area was like photographing women in a very authentic way. Um, and I would not retouch, uh, you know, I, I was sort of doing that. That's always been what I've done. I've always had all female crews. Um, yeah. That's 20, 20 years now I've been doing that. Um, and I, and I feel really strongly about it and I'm still like that on my sets. Um So, you know, I also was painfully aware that the lack of female photographers and, you know, I was like, this is really weird. There's like, uh, you know, how many times can I be photographed by Ellen Von Unworth? Who's amazing, but like, where are the other women? And then there was like, you know, Annie Leibovitz, but I, you know, was like this Annie Leibovitz and Mary Ellen Mark. And I mean, I probably have every single, this is my bookshelf. I have probably every female photographer that's ever published a book, you know, I have on these shelves. Um, and, you know, and I just studied and I learned and I, you know, I educated myself. Um, and I also experienced extreme, um, misogyny and sexism as a female photographer. And I uh, was very determined to do something about it. So um, in between starting being a photographer um, and when I launched Girl Gaze, I had twins um, at 35. So I was a photographer for a good 10 years. 
um, and not being a famous person. I think I did one film in there, but that's the woman director who I loved, who had asked me to do it. Um, so, you know, I, after I had my kids and just to say that like what I've experienced personally is what has informed my work always. Right. So when I had kids, I had very bad postpartum and I was looking for, uh, authentic stories from women that I could get some insight and help and support from, and I couldn't find them. And so I was like, oh my God, this is terrible. Why are there not stories that are told from a female perspective? Like, and so I put my interview skills to use and I basically started interviewing my friends in my house or their house about really substantial life issues. One of them was postpartum depression, but everything from like, you know, um, self-harming and sexual assault and being cheated on and body image stuff. And I basically filmed those interviews on my cameras in my house and ended up making that show into the conversation, which is my interview series, which is, you know, on 18 different networks around the world. Um, and, and again, that show came from my own need to find answers mm -hmm. to questions that I had about being a woman at that stage of my life. And so that kind of took off and put me in front of the camera again. Um, and suddenly, you know, I was forward facing, um, and, but it was in a very different way because I had a much stronger infrastructure and I really felt like I was simply the vehicle for these stories. It wasn't yeah. about me. It was about I'm facilitating women sharing these stories. And therefore, if I need to be on camera or I need to do interviews, like that's fine because I just want people to get this information. Right. Because that's so important in the message and, and the issues you were discussing are, yeah. were, are, are critical. And as you said, you know, a lot of these things are not talked about. And they're it's not. absolutely shocking. And, and, you know, when people suffer them, they think they're alone or they're odd or they're different. And actually... I mean, the help you've given people by, you know, them realizing they're not alone and actually, you know, that kind of camaraderie and sisterhood is so special. Thank you. And it, that was my goal. Um, and that is still my goal with the conversation. Um, you know, we're, I can't go to people's houses anymore because of COVID. And so I'm doing it as a podcast. Um, I did a series with Spotify and I'm doing another series that is not behind a paywall because I want people who not everyone can afford to have a subscription to Spotify. So I'm having it outside the paywall and I'm going <laughs> to, I know. And at the same time, we're launching a community that's a private community that's connected to the conversation for people to be able to discuss and have meetings and, you know, get together uh, and do, you know, virtual live events and, and we're creating programming around each one of those subject matters um, that we talk about on the conversation, the kind of, tentpole topics, uh, you know, career, wellness, you know, parenting, sex, relationships, spirituality, uh, because I think people need to have a safe space to be able to learn and grow and to share their thoughts, even if they're not PC or even if they're not the most educated. And I want people to be able to connect with other people and to, again, not feel alone on the journey, because that that's that's a big part of it. So I'm actually kind of getting ready to uh, start those interviews. So exciting. Um, I can't wait. <laughs> no, it's really exciting. And, um, and you know, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to doing that. And I also, at the same time, um, you know, run Girl Gaze. And, you know, Girl Gaze are really founded because 
I was just so sick of the prejudice towards female, the female lens, you know, and it's yeah. a real problem that we are not the ones who are telling our stories nice. on TV, cinema, plays, books, like what the hell? Why if imagery, the majority of images that we see depicting us are not taken by us. Which is insane, right? And so I really, I was like, I experienced it firsthand, you know, and I, and I just wanted to change it for the next generation. I just did not want them to have the same, you know, glass ceiling that I had, which was, I mean, glass ceiling, I could not get off my knees. You know, it was like, I just couldn't. And it was devastating for me to realize that my success as a photographer had nothing to do with how hard I worked or how good I was. Ah. Nothing. It only had to do with the fact that I was a woman trying to enter a space that was controlled and managed and on lockdown by men. Wow. That's the reality. Yeah. And no one likes to think that, that that misogyny is true or sexism is true or prejudice or bias is true. But look, I mean, I'm not being funny, but 53% of white women voted for Trump. Look at how close our election was. There's a lot of people who are on board with systemic racism and sexism, amongst many other things, right? So it's real. We know it is. Um, and that was my experience. And so what I wanted to do was to create a community uh, that was very clearly about the female perspective, hence girl gaze. And, you know, we really did and, and continue to champion um, all of the people, well, female and non-binary specifically, um, you know, individuals who have been left out of the equation because of their ge uh, gender and because of their race. And so, you know, we're the place that you go when no one gives a shit about you because of your gender or your race, but you're creative and you're talented. Um, and so we grew and we continue to grow this phenomenal community of just the most talented people who, Number one, find community with other people. Yeah. Like them. And number two, it's not just enough for me to be able to say, um, yeah, look at all these people. Um, I'm interested and I, you know, and I've been doing, you know, work in this area for long enough to know that, you know, talk is cheap. I'm not going to sit on another panel at another lunch that's costing a few hundred grand to get everyone in the room to talk about the problem of gender equality. Take that 200 grand that your fancy lunch cost and give that money to uh, a bunch of people, creatives who actually need it, hire them. Yeah. And so I don't- I'm By the way, she really does speak her word. I've seen her tackle major CEOs with exactly this ask. And she's very highly persuasive and it works, doesn't it? I mean, the thing is, is that not everyone that doesn't hire women or girls or non-binary folk, not everyone who excludes this demographic from creative, from the opportunities is a dick, right? right? A lot of people are dicks, but there's a lot who aren't. And so when you get to sit in a room with someone and say, oh, hey, um, CEO of, you know, big baller global company, like, you know, um, we, we've noticed that, um, 
you know, you don't hire any people of color, any women, uh, you know, to create any of your creative campaigns. And you're spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year creating marketing. And how also do you expect for this product to land with this demographic? If you don't, if, if, if I'm trying to market to a certain demographic, but I'm having old white guys creating the content and I'm not marketing to old white guys. Why we're not speaking the same language. It's not good. Bottom line. (laughs) It's certainly not right. (laughs) It makes sense. It's like, look, it's good for your bottom line. I promise you the ROI on hiring this entire demographic that you have not considered, you will be so happy that you are hiring trans folk, uh, you know, people of color, women, girls, uh, non-binary individuals, you're going to be so happy because not only is the work stuff that you haven't seen a million places before, because it's the same old people making the same old shit. So what you're going to actually create is really strong, but you're going to just bring in all these new communities who are resonating with that product, that content. And so, you know, we did this phenomenal partnership with um, Unilever and we you know, I think we created over 5,000 images in 47 countries. Uh, you know, hundreds of GoGays creatives were hired through our, uh, our tech platform. And, you know, it was a game changer. That, that, that work on a glass lion. It was a, it was a game changer because it, <laughs> it was created by the people. The stories were told by the people um, who, you know, it was their worlds and it was, it was genuine and authentic. And, and that was kind of where where we really transformed what was ultimately, you know, a community on Instagram with hundreds of thousands of people in it to an actual technology product where, uh, you know, companies can subscribe to Golgaze. They pay a subscription fee and they can post jobs and sort through our database and they can hire the, the community. And, you know, we're global. So... It's kind of incredible. I don't know how I ended up as the founder of a technology platform. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty tech savvy, but like something else. Well, it's incredible. It was just such a testament to you. You know, really, these extraordinary things that you know you so often as a person, Amanda. You, you know, you experience these things, and you, you just have this heart where you want to go and help other people, and um, through the through True. you know with the learnings that you've gone through, and 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 I. You so, you know, I so admire you. And so you really inspire me in so right. many ways because your capacity is, is just extraordinary and you're always striving and stretching. And every time I speak to you, you've got something else that you want to bring or, or, or show or do. But I'm very aware we're running out of time and you've got a child to go and pick up in a minute. So really, so we'll, we'll, you know, really, as you know, we always end up on, on, on this show with, you know, what's the one ask that you'd like to make of the people listening? What's your one ask, tip, or piece of inspiration that you'd like to give them? I mean, I think what I would say is that um, if there's one of, you know, the most important thing that I invite you to do is to explore what makes your heart happy and your spirit happy. And once you've identified what that one thing is, or maybe it's three things if you're really lucky, ask yourself if you can build a sustainable career around that thing. 
Because if you can build a career around doing something that you love, that makes your heart happy, that in some way is being of service to other people, I think those are the businesses that are the most sustainable. I really, really do. So, you know, if there's one thing I could, you know, invite people to do, it would be to do that little exercise and see what you come up with. Oh, fantastic. Amanda, it's such great advice. Thank you for being such a complete inspiration and, and just kind of like real love in action and, and service in everything you do. 